Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I am doing great yet again because my guest is someone I've been a fan of for a very long time. Joining us is Dr. Lawrence Zettler, who has dedicated his life to understanding the interactions between orchids and their fungal symbionts. You hear a lot about plants and fungi these days. A lot of it is getting tainted by media and interpretations, but Dr. Zettler has a wonderful scientific insight into the realities of these relationships as they relate to orchids and ecosystem health. This is super inspiring work, very important work, and I don't want to keep you from it any longer, so let's dive in. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Zettler. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Lawrence Zettler, it is an honor to have you on the podcast. I've been a fan of your work for a long time. Let's introduce yourself. Start off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Well, I am a teacher uh, primarily, but I also have uh, worked with undergraduate students in the research lab at Illinois College. And if you go back in time, maybe not quite to the Stone Age, I suppose, <laughs> uh, I was raised a uh, in rural north central Florida outside of Gainesville, I was very introverted, had a very, very few friends. And uh, a lot of my time was spent catching insects and snakes and lizards. And I had, I built an observatory. I was in you know, mm. a telescope. I had a butterfly collection, built model airplanes, you name it. But I, I was very much introverted and kind of uh, learned about things on my own with a select group of friends. My father was a professor at the University of Florida, and uh, he was actually considered to be the world's authority on or uh, on orchid viruses during oh, the wow. 80s. And uh, so he inspired me quite a bit uh, as I was developing and growing up. My mom was a kind hearted mother. She really liked and appreciated nature, and she made sure I had plenty of creatures to play with, you know, <laughs> and to learn about. I have a younger sister named Jennifer, who uh, is now a professor and entomologist actually at Georgia wow. Southern. So we have a, a core there of, um, <laughs> of people that interested in creatures nice. <laughs> and plants. Uh, so I entered the University of Florida uh, where my father was at, um, big, big university. And I have to confess, I played too many video games. I uh, <laughs> didn't know how to study. And I, I really kind of flunked out my first two semesters there. Uh, a lot of people don't know that about me, but um, huh. it was a hard it was a hard struggle to learn how to study in college at a big school. And so I got back on my feet at a smaller community college nearby that didn't have a video arcade nearby. And so <laughs> uh, I went back to University of Florida my junior year and, and majored in. Uh, well, technically, the major was agriculture, but it's an entomology background. Uh, so I, I got my bachelor's there in 87. And while I was a student there, two very significant things happened that made me what I am today. Uh, the first is that I met a professor there in plant pathology named Dr. Raghavan Charudatan, who I worked part-time with. And he taught me how to isolate fungi from natural hmm. substrates, um, ant nests and things. And he said, go to it. And I did. I, I learned from this, from this man. He was wonderful, wonderful scientist. And then um, while at 
University of Florida, I took a class in biological illustration with Marion Ruff Sheehan. And my mom actually was an artist and she was teaching me some of her color techniques. And I uh, work at night usually in the <laughs> entomology department drawing dragonflies um, for in a professor's office for a book. Wow. And the, the professor was Sid Dunkel, and he, he authored later um, Dragonflies Through Binoculars, but he was my professor there. Huh. And uh, I illustrate 165 dragonflies, species, and color. The book is, uh, was published in 2000, Dragonflies in North America. So I almost did that for a career. I almost became a <laughs> biological illustrator. Wow. And as a matter of fact, my senior year, uh, Marion Sheehan encouraged me to apply for a job drawing sea sponges in the Caribbean. And I think it was linked with the Smithsonian. And Whoa. she had enough confidence in me. I, and I... And I really gave it some deep thought. And I thought, I, I appreciate that, but I'd really like to learn about what I'm drawing. So that hmm. was a key moment where I said, I'm going to go to graduate school and I might come back as an illustrator. But let me let me learn about what I'm drawing. And the next thing that happened, I'm I'm not a good test taker. I was terrible at standardized tests. <laughs> me neither. Some are. And so my GRE was so bad that um, I had to throw everything at, I had at my, on my resume. <laughs> and I was very fortunate that a professor I met at Clemson University, Dr. John Ferry, had enough confidence in, in what I could do that he encouraged me to uh, work with him for a master's degree. But it's interesting that the dean at the time didn't want me there because the score was so low. And I begged <laughs> and pleaded. I said, give me a chance. And so he, he reluctantly let me into Clemson on probation. And I was able to, to do just, just fine. And so I was offered a project by John Ferry. He said, you can either do an orchid or uh, a, a floristic study. Huh. And I chose the orchid because, you know, it was learning how to, these, these really interesting plants interact. And that's what I decided to do for a master's. And then I took a mycology class with Dr. Tom McGinnis at Clemson. and. He uh, had a project where I isolated fungi using what I learned at Florida with Dr. Charo Dotton. I uh, was able to isolate a fungus from an orchid root from the Southern Appalachians, and it looked the part. Hmm. It looked like it was a fungus that, that orchids need. And I sent it to Dr. Randy Curra in Canada and Alberta at the time. And he, back then we didn't have email, and he <laughs> sent me a nice hand-signed letter, which I still have. He, he was very well known. And he said, I think it's a new species. Wow. <laughs> and it turned out to be. Wow. I, yeah. So that was kind of my awakening to, wow, this is really, this is, so I, I told my committee and they were very excited. <laughs> and then um, I said, well, let me, this is another paper from Canada, symbiotic germination, you know, using a fungus to, in, to trigger germination of orchid seeds in vitro. And I said, well, let me give it a shot. And I did. And it worked. I was told, don't hold your breath. It probably won't work, but it did. <laughs> and I was also told by uh, the experts that it hadn't happened before in the United States before. So I asked my committee, um, can I do this for a PhD? And also I didn't want to take the GRE again. <laughs> and so they agreed and I kind of just leapfrogged and went into the PhD from there. Nice. It's ironic that I got a small grant to study the orchid, Platanthera integralabia, 
using funds from the American Orchid Society um, that were raised by Marion Sheehan herself, hmm. some, some of her artwork. Um, so it's kind of ironic that I was using the, you know, some of her artwork to get me through. It's kind of a roundabout. Yeah. And so I, I, I graduated. I um, was excited. The, had a PhD from Clemson and I had a, um, was offered a, a visiting professor job at Furman University nearby. And uh, for two years, I, I worked at Furman as a visiting professor, sabbatical replacement. Nice. And, yeah. And I wrote the dean of Clemson after that and said, I really appreciate the fact that you allowed me to come to Clemson, even on probation. And I just want to let you know that I, I, I got through and um, that not everybody takes standardized tests very well. <laughs> So I, I never forgot doing that. Since then, I've come in closer to home. I was in my office at Furman waiting to hear some job interviews and, you know, traveling. And late one night at about 930 at night, the phone rang and I said, who is this calling? And I picked it up and it was um, Dr. Elaine Chapman at Illinois College. And she invited me for an interview. And she said, we have your CV and, and we'd like to interview and I was very um, surprised that anyone would be calling me that late at night. Yeah. Normally, you know, no one's around. But I accepted that, and the rest became history. <laughs> um, it's kind of interesting that I came here with an older science building. There's no air conditioning in my office. It was 95 degrees in the summer. <laughs> my fungus cultures I took with me were in Tupperware containers. Wow. And and I had no research lab. And so that was the birth of the orchid recovery program in its infancy here. Wow. Uh, about four years later, we built a lovely science building here. Uh, I met my wife here. She was a professor of psychology, Elizabeth. And now we have a daughter, Audrey, who's now in college. <laughs> and yeah, so it's, it's a really lovely setting here. And uh, one of the people I'd like to single out here that had a huge role in this formation, this orchid recovery is Scott Stewart, my student at the time here. He was a English major and I contaminated his thought patterns. <laughs> and uh, He became a biology major. He, nice. he worked with Potanthra leucophaea. He did some sea germinations with uh, sea germination with um, the Eastern Prairie fringed orchid hmm. and it worked. And he, he had four publications that he co-authored before he graduated. Wow. And Dr. Uh, Mike Kane in the University of Florida offered him a position in his lab to work on a PhD, and he accepted. And so Scott Stewart went to work with Dr. Kane in Gainesville. And uh, now Scott is uh, uh, executive director of the Millennium Park Foundation in Chicago. So he's, he's still connected to plants, and uh, it's, it's fantastic that he's out there. Something right behind me in, in, in this uh, interview here, the Zoom meeting, the phone rang in 2012, and uh, there was a gentleman on the other line who uh, had a British accent, and that was Dr. Biswam Baran Saracen. He was from Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew, in London, and he invited me to be part of a team of uh, researchers to go to Madagascar, and so... I worked on a research project with them for five years, and that wow. went well. Yeah, so I was there twice, and I was able, we were encouraged not to go there to collect samples because it was too far, and the, or, and the orchid fungi wouldn't make it. Huh. But we did anyway. It was a risk, and we, <laughs> made, 
And we got some really interesting fungi from orchids in Madagascar. And currently, um, my current projects, I'm working in research in Ecuador and Cuba, and also in Palau, which is uh, in collaboration with the Smithsonian's Environmental Research Center. I'm working with Dr. Benjamin Crane, Dr. Dennis Wiggum, and Dr. Melissa McCormick at, at CERC. Some of you, I think on your podcast, you, you've heard about the North American Orchid Conservation Center, or NAOC. Yep, big supporter of them. Yeah, Dr. Wiggum founded that, and we're looking to make it continue after his retirement, and that's something we're, we're up to. But right now, my big project on my desk, I have a lot of things to my, <laughs> my right here. I have a lot of books and things. I'm co-authoring a, a book with Philip Seaton uh, in the UK. He's a well-known orchidist on uh, orchid seeds and seed germination. And the book is, um, we're we think we're going to title it Saving Orchids in a Warming World. Hmm. And we're, we're shooting for a deadline early summer, and, and everything's going according to plan. So that's exciting. Yeah. I, uh, I'm very happy that I was uh, offered to uh, a research associate position at Chicago Botanic Garden. So I'm working with Chicago on research, and I'm continuing to teach here at Illinois College. So sorry to be a little <laughs> no, but uh, that's kind of my my background. Uh, that's fantastic. I love those stories, and I mean, there's so many angles of of just you know serendipity, passion, uh, a lot of things people will empathize with introversion not really doing well with people, but doing well with the natural world. I mean, that was me to a T up until relatively recently in life. And, you know, I barely got through the GREs. I suck at standardized tests. So there's things I think are going to resonate. And it's it's wonderful to see someone that's had such a successful career that's driven by passion and interest and, and following those threads to their wherever they lead you, but to really do it in a way that benefits the nature that you love so much and, and orchids especially. And, and what I love most and admire most about your work is that melding of these two worlds that are often treated as separate botany and mycology, but the, the recognition of just how important they are together. And when it comes to orchids, I mean, they are poster children for the importance of symbioses and the relationships between two different kingdoms of life. And so for those listening that aren't as familiar with orchids as, as some of us, why is this relationship between fungi and orchids so important? What's going on there? Yeah, that's, well, we have to go back over 100 million years for that. Oh. I think. That's <laughs> when the orchids first uh, appeared. That's what most people think is um, somewhere in Asia, terrestrial orchids, a group of them with fleshy berries, perhaps, hmm. uh, dispersed by bipedal dinosaurs, maybe. Ooh. Uh, that, that's not, you know, that's just sure. speculation, but. <laughs> Exciting. Uh, that's, they came about as terrestrials, we think, and went into the trees and, and went with their seed dispersal mechanisms, went off and conquered the world, except for very slick, cold places like Antarctica. But the fungus is, um, let's not kid ourselves here. Uh, <laughs> when we see an orchid, first of all, we're walking across the landscape and we're walking underneath our feet are another world of microbes fungi, springtail insects, you name mm. it. And we often forget that. But when we see an orchid in bloom, it's obviously captivating most of the time. Most orchids are just gorgeous and different. They never seem to be really common, but 
they're the first to disappear. So that when you see them now and you don't see them in a few years, there's something wrong with the environment. Mm. And one of the reasons we think that is, is because they have this uh, very close, intimate symbiosis with fungi and um, they also need insects. So, but orchids, I want everyone out there listening to understand, and, and let's be clear, they're not the innocent plants that you might think. <laughs> they are master manipulators. Nice. They manipulate us for our, because we like to grow them and we often kill them and they take <laughs> our money. So they, they, you know, everyone knows that, I think. They manipulate insects to a large extent. Some of them don't even offer a nectar reward for the bee or, or whatever, and in below the ground or in the tree bark, their root systems are connected to a network of fungi, of higher fungi, of, of mushroom-like fungi, basidiomycetes. And they are not, it's a symbiosis. It's, it's a mycorrhizal association, but let's not fool ourselves. Orchids are the aggressor. <laughs> they, that, that's, generally the, that's generally the thinking um, currently, is that it's not, generally speaking, a mutual symbiosis so it's huh. not a a nice happy marriage between the fungus and the, and the orchid the orchid is um taking carbon and water and and certain nutrients from the fungus and the fungus is not getting much in return at least we don't think so and hmm. and some of the experts are calling this a parasite provider relationship wow yeah so uh, it's it's uh I'm, I'm finding out that um I, I think it's fantastic that that you know like in your podcast here people know about plant symbiosis with fungi mycorrhizae but the 90 percent or so plants that connect with fungi in a, in a mycorrhizal association the, the fungus is getting something back hmm. but that's not generally what we think orchids are doing they're they're out there, their seeds land on the ground or in the trees, and they're waiting maybe a couple of years until it contacts a fungus that it needs to germinate the seeds. And it's going to steal, take what it can get from that fungus. And, and that's generally the carbon. And that's because the seeds that the orchids were born with, uh, the embryo has no real food source, hmm. unlike most angiosperms and unlike most plants. And so as the orchid de develops and grows, Many species produce leaves. And here's, here's the interesting part. It's almost like the orchids are, you know, obviously abusive to the fungus when they're, when they're young, when these plants are young. But they don't stop sometimes when they keep, when, when the orchid develops a leaf and begins to feed itself with sunlight, you know, the photosynthesis. A lot of these orchids, we think, retain the fungus or encourage new fungi to enter. And they exploit these fungi as well into adulthood. And um, I guess a take-home message here for, I guess this is the teacher in me here. <laughs> when you see an orchid in nature, try to look at it in a different light. You see leaves oftentimes. Yes, that's a plant. Yes, it's photosynthesizing. But it's also a mycotroph, meaning that the orchid is utilizing fungi, feeding. You can't say feeding, they don't have a mouth. But it's, <laughs> it's utilizing fungi as a food source to supplement photosynthesis so it's eating or feeding getting carbon two ways from the sun and from the fungus and if something comes along and nips off the leaf if it's a terrestrial that's okay hmm. the orchid says that's fine i'll just consume this fungus in these roots a little longer and we'll put a new one out wow 
Yeah. And a lot of terrestrial, well, I would say a lot, but there are some terrestrials like Isotria, we think, and some of the lady slippers in the East, they can disappear. Their, their disappearing acts are known. They, they might disappear for five years under the ground. You think the population is gone, but in reality, it's really down there being a mycotroph. <laughs> and eventually it just might say, okay, I'm, I'm tired of eating this fungus. I'm going to go and get the sun now. <laughs> getting a little boring down here let's uh pop up and see what's going on above ground <laughs> wow and you know it's one of those things where people know i'm obsessed with orchids and they'll be like oh yeah you know those those grocery store orchids are so pretty i'm like that is just the first layer of molecules on that giant iceberg and when you start to tease apart these sorts of things you realize just how wild the orchid world is and and vice versa like you said the underground world as well all of the microbes that make this possible and these partnerings and and sometimes it's good sometimes it's bad depending on the perspective and unfortunately you know we have a situation where popular culture books certain scientists that get a lot of attention in the media like to paint this as this kumbaya hippy dippy sort of given everyone's getting along but i mean orchids are a perfect example of how biased that that viewpoint can be well also you know with a parasitism, usually you don't kill the, the hand that feeds you, they say. <laughs> and orchids, um, I don't think they're going to go out and you know, kill the fungus, but they might take from it uh, little bits and pieces at a time. So, um, and I think that makes sense. It, it, you don't want the, the, the fungus out there in the substrate to disappear because if it does, you know, if you, if you kill it, at least in your local area, your seedlings might not have a very good shot at germinating. Um, with that fungus someday so there's a balance i think and uh sure you know it might it might be that science finds out that there's more of a directionality to the carbon exchange to the fungus um maybe but hmm. i'm still waiting to see the evidence for that <laughs> yeah i mean exciting prospects for for any potential scientist in training or people looking to kick off a an interesting and challenging career path but from your perspective, though, you deal in a lot of fungal culturing. You mentioned isolating fungi, culturing them. And when it comes to trying to understand the fungi that orchids are partnering with, I mean, most of them aren't like the toadstool, amanita-looking fungi. A lot of them, from what I've come to understand, and I'm a novice in this field, are kind of obscure, hard to really pin down or identify in any sort of meaningful way unless you really know what you're looking for, right? Yeah, you, you, you hit on something that occurred to me this last year. Um, I've been at this for 30 years now. Time goes fast. <laughs> <Yeah>. and, um, <laughs> I'm from the generation where the, the DNA evidence was just starting to kick in, where email was just starting to be used. <laughs> and I had to learn some of the old school techniques for isolating and identifying these things. Uh, Orchid fungi, they might be allied with mushrooms, but they don't produce mushrooms. And so they produce a, a mycelium that is pretty much not much to go with to identify it. But my role is, and I love this, it, it, I take it for granted over 30 years that I, I look at a root and I isolate a fungus and I can kind of tell you early on if, it's, if it looks the part, Nice. if, if it's going to be a fungus that we can use or not. There's a lot of molds and endophytes in these roots, and there's trichoderma, there's who knows what. And they might have a role in these orchids, but I'm after a select group of them that have very subtle characteristics that a light microscope can show me. 
Hmm. And I was reminded by uh, one of my colleagues down the hall who's much younger. She came in one day and she said, you know, I'm from the generation where we, you know, we, we don't have a lot of people, younger people that can take a, a microscope and look in an orchid root in the, in the auger and say, oh, that's the fungus we want. And that it's kind of horrifying because if we don't have more people that learn this, then our job is harder to uh, cons conserve these remarkable plants. That is a fascinating perspective to bring to the table and a really, you know, in addition to being a call to action, so to speak, but it's easy to get into this bin and I fall into it myself where you go, okay, it's the orchid and the fungus, not all of the other things that are also in the soil around the roots doing who knows what, like you said. So when you go looking under a microscope at a root, what and I guess if this is a simple answer, if not, then we can adjust. But what do you look for to know that you're on the right track to something that you need to isolate and start to culture before we even getting to the culturing part of it? Yeah. So there's a, a manuscript I'm almost finished with right now. These I'm using some photographs that show what I look for, um, graphically shows it. And I can I can summarize it in one word. <laughs> Snowflake. Oh, if, if you look under the microscope on auger that doesn't have a lot of sugars, the orchid fungi that I like to select and use for germinating these seeds looks like a snowflake. It looks like uh, it has a hazy light. Uh, it's not compact. It's very diffuse, straight growing branches with some 90 degree branching going on. And that is how I can tell early on some of these other endophytes, these fungi that I'm not interested in, these molds, these um, perhaps awful fungi that might hurt plants. Hmm. We have kinky hyphae, these little growing um, threads that these fungi produce. They have kinky, you know, bent hyphae. Orchid fungi are generally more straight and snowflake-like. Hmm. And I've, I've been training my students recent, in recent years to, to look for them. And they, and they have done it. They have I had a number of students now that have learned that we call it the snowflake technique. And when you put it on another auger from there, it, it takes off and grows. And sure enough, it's the fungus we want. The next test is to marry it with the seeds in the, in the Petri dish. And if it works, if the seeds germinate, then you're pretty confident that's the fungus that you were after. Wow. So really, I mean, what it sounds like is you can have all the new novel technology you want, but there's no substitute for getting a plate under a microscope and just learning basic skills of identifica identification. Well, that's pretty much what I had when I started here. I had a Tupperware with <laughs> fungi and a microscope and some auger. So I love that. Yeah. I mean, when you hear this sort of stuff, you do picture you with a lab coat, big goggles and a big vibrating, <laughs> noisy contraption. But yeah, Tupperware, I mean, this is something hypothetically we could do at home, not to say that it's that easy by any means, but the next step is that culture. So how do you get in the suite of microbes that are available or potentially in a, a, a sample? How do you isolate the one you want and then grow it out to start doing these tests? I mean, you mentioned auger, but what's that process look like? Well, it's, it's brain surgery. And this <laughs> also traces back to when I was, you know, more of an artist. You have to have very steady hands. I'm and, out. <laughs> uh, yeah, you have to have, well, you know, I, I'm a heavy coffee drinker, but I still have steady hands even under that regime. Lucky. Yeah, I am. And uh, 
what what you have to do is take a very small scalpel or needle and a dissection scope and a light source from below the auger surface and you illuminate it so that the fungus glows through the auger and then you have to zoom, zoom in to a very small piece of the fungus growing in the auger it's called a hyphal tip they call it it's like a little little earthworm it looks like like a worm and you have to surgically remove that from the dish by hand by i like to cut a square around it which is very small it's about the small each square i cut out on the auger on the microscope is about the size of a dot on the printed page wow and i have to lift it over into another dish where i hopefully have captured and isolated that fungus and in about three weeks we have a pretty good confidence that the fungus is what we were after wow that is precision engineering in a way that's remarkable and when you then try to marry the fungi with the seed you have to be looking for something that indicates it's working but from the little bit of research i have done on the subject and the literature i've read is is every fungus you culture going to work with every orchid seed or do you kind of have to match them to genera or tribes or something to that effect yeah it's uh well remember when an orchid is out there in nature staring at you eye to eye if you will it's almost communicating with me and says all right all right buddy here i am i'm a new i'm a species you haven't worked with good luck figuring me out (laughs) and you have to kind of reverse the role and imagine what it's going to take in that location Hmm. to grow from seed with that fungus that might have in its roots. Up here in the cold north, Illinois, there's snow out here today. These orchids, the seeds, need to have cold, moist stratification of the eastern prairie-fringed orchid to, to germinate. And that's that's one of the secrets we had to figure out. But every fungus that you get out of the orchid root might or might not work. In fact, most probably won't. And uh, it's just a matter of trying to figure out how the orchid is growing in the natural setting. And if this is the orchid that you're getting time and again, that's the fungus rather that you're getting time and again, that's probably the one you want to go with. So but I can tell you, huh? go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so there's some, there does have to be sort of like a regional targeting when it comes to like, where's this orchid growing? Where are we going to go looking for the fungus as well? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And that's what I like to do. I like to go out in nature and look for very small seedlings of the orchids that are, are endangered or rare and try to, without with as little harm as possible, removing the fungus that they're using and bringing it into the lab and trying to mass produce the orchids uh, and then reintroduce them. Wow. And it's not easy sometimes. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Yeah, I can imagine it's probably as varied as orchids and fungi are, uh, <laughs> which the, the the element of working with endangered stuff always gets me stressed. But um, kudos for taking that effort on. And, you know, you've obviously traveled a lot. You've been in different places. A lot of your literature is in Florida or in the Midwest or even Madagascar. And, you know, has any area presented different challenges to that? I mean, do like the tropics differ from the subtropics versus the definitely temperate zone in terms of what's available and how easy it is to culture? I mean, I'm thinking also in the context of like, I know orchids more from the horticultural side of things. And I know the tropical epiphytes tend to be the ones that are in cultivation far more than the native terrestrials. Yeah, it's, um, I'm finding generally as a generalization, the tropical orchids 
seem to be user-friendly more or less. They, they give you the fungus you want. Not always. Hmm. Our first trip to Madagascar, uh, I didn't, I wasn't able to get, get what we wanted the first time and I had to go back and we got plenty at the second oh. round. It's kind of scary for, for me, especially when you're funded and you're going off into a new place where there's lots of hazards. I mean, let's face it, wherever you go in the world, there's always something. And usually something happens to me on these trips. Oh. <laughs> but, you know, you're, you don't know if you're going to succeed or not. I didn't know, for example, that, that we could even get a fungus from, say, in Florida, from the ghost orchid, for example. And mm. uh, we did. But it's, it's always kind of, if you don't make that, that leap into the unknown, then you're never going to do it. Right. And there will be failures. That's life. But uh, there are some really powerful rewards. And I guess my, my battle, my goal is to try to target the orchids that I think are the most endangered, that have the best shot at giving you the fungus you want. And that can be grown rapidly to, uh, so that the next generation can receive these plants and not see them as dead specimens in herbaria. Yeah. Yeah. I, like you said, high risk, but high reward when it does pay off. And certainly your career shows you that things can pay off in a big and exciting and meaningful way. But, you know, when you're thinking about going to a place like Madagascar, bringing these things back, trying to study them in a lab, it's understandable, I think, more easily understandable, I should say, to keep a, a plant lineage going in captivity. It's another thing to keep these fungal cultures going. And so is this something you have to constantly be on top of, renewing, getting new specimens? Like, what's the longevity of some of these mycorrhizal symbionts in an elaboratory setting? Well, that's the good thing to, to offer is that these fungi really don't need the orchid in nature. And you can, for that reason, they're easy to grow on their own. You can pop them on some uh, sugar-based or potato-based auger, and they just are just fine. They're very happy. And so they live maybe in the laboratory room temperature for about six months, maybe the year at the most. In the refrigerator, we uh, keep them for about two years, and then we have to refeed them, oh, which wow. I'm doing actually now. What you just said reminds me on my to-do list. I have to feed the fungi from Ecuador and uh Palau right now I have in the, in the special room we have to my left. Uh, it's a USDA quarantine facility that gives us special permission to work with these um, very, you know, these foreign fungi, these fungi that aren't from the U.S. borders. And those permits are hard to get. I and, can uh, only imagine. Yeah, the, we have a quarantine room here and uh, we have permits to do, Madagascar we had permits for and, and also now Palau and Ecuador. So um, I'm grateful that it doesn't require a lot of funds for keeping fungi alive because they are really pretty happy with just a little bit of food you give them. And generally they don't, they don't die on you readily. Wow. That's good. That's good news. I like to hear those sorts of things, but I, what I also really appreciate and, and admire about your work is there's a big conservation component to this. And the goal is always to get more orchids back on the landscape, even restore populations that might've been lost. But I'm always thinking in the context of orchids, like it's one thing to say, I'm going to go out and plant an orchid. If that fungal symbiont isn't there, what future right. does that population have? And so is there indication that whether it's coming in on the roots of the, the plants you've cultivated or through some sort of culture, can we re reintroduce mycorrhizal fungi or are we just way too early days to know how that's going to play out? No, uh, I think that's possible that the orchid fungi that you release with the seedlings, you know, when you're releasing both organisms together, the fungus 
I think has a shot at going onward into the soil and uh, growing outward nice. so that nice. maybe it will cause spontaneous seedlings to form later. Um, I, I put together a milkshake. It's not really a good word for it, but um, I took the fungus from the Eastern Prairie Fringed Orchid here and uh, put it into, <laughs> it was from the prairie. This fungus was a Ceratobacidium species. And uh, this is what the orchid likes to have here in the Midwest. And I put it into um, kind of like a blender Hmm. And I chopped up the fungus into little bits and I put it into a, uh, a water broth. And we took milk jugs of it up to Chicago area and some of the prairie sites and poured it into a little on a transect, some uh, little spots where we think that the fungus would be released and do, and do quite well. And we put some seeds there. This was done with Kathy Pollock, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service there. Uh, and some of the volunteers there. And it looks like the early reports are that the fungus did leap into the you know, oh. soil and become established, we think, and may have germinated some of these seedlings along the transects. But to answer your question from a more technical standpoint, there are techniques now where you can take the soil samples and you can see if the fungus, the DNA is, uh, is uh, the fungus is in the soil that you think is uh, going to trigger more, more seed, wow. seedling. That is so exciting to hear. I mean, talk about advances and what, what what's possible now. I mean, to think that, you know, probably when your career started, we had no hopes of getting orchids back on the landscape. And, and here we are, right? And we're talking about making fungal milkshakes and, and potentially getting fungi back because it seems like from my understanding that, and you hinted at these kind of canary in the coal mine moments with orchids, that, it, yeah, the destruction we've done through messing with soil structure and texture and integrity through compaction and all that fun stuff and just removing dead wood from the landscape or getting rid of all of the organic nutrients that would go back into the soil, that, like, losing fungi is almost easier than losing the fungi. It's just all kind of a cascading thing after that. So to think we could take a, a sort of sterilized site and potentially bring it back to something uh, is really encouraging. Yeah, that, that's that's right. Um, there's an interesting uh, terminology that's floating out there now um, called senile populations. Hmm. And that was coined by Dr. Hanna Rasmussen in Denmark. And that's a term that your, your listeners might want to remember. What We use that term when an orchid is in the habitat, sitting there year after year, blooming, and it's pollinated and seeds are forming and it's, it looks perfectly happy and everyone's celebrating and they're having champagne that the orchid is alive again. Well, I have news for you. If you don't look around and find seedlings, what's the point? Yeah. The, the, the population, if it's lacking the natural fungus or some other factor and there's no seedlings, then it's, it's doomed. That population is going to go down when that mature plant is done. And that, those are senile populations. And uh, some of the work in Florida, at the Panther Refuge, we think the ghost orchid is one of those that might be more or less persisting in, in senile populations. There's a few select areas where seedlings are, and we think it might be linked to water and maybe the fungus isn't as, as common as we think. Bummer. I mean, yeah, I th I'm sure, you know, we're talking terrestrial heavily here in the last couple of minutes, but the the epiphytic realm of fungi and, and, and culturing probably adds a whole layer of challenges to it as well. How do we get fungi into the trees or onto bark to make good substrates for these orchids to even have a shot? Yeah, it's a great, that's a great question. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of um, 
maybe taking a, a gun and shooting up the mycelium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or like uh, repurpose one of those uh, aerial sprayers and just fly over, you know, just in that m- massive budget all conservationists are getting. Just grab an aerial sprayer and fly a few laps over a forest. <laughs> it, maybe a drone can uh, drop some there we fungal go. Fungal milkshakes down. I don't know. That's I like that. As, as a hobby drone flyer, I will use any opportunity to meld conservation in my hobbies. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, things to think about for anyone listening that's looking for innovative ways to, to bring new ideas to the table and, and new questions to ask. But, you know, from a conservation standpoint and really from a horticultural standpoint, many people listening might be uh, familiar with the in vitro culturing of orchids through just abiotic auger or gels, flasking. I mean, that's how a lot of the species we grow in our homes are produced. But I know it's a big method that people use for conservation and restoration. And without that symbiont there, and if you don't know if it's in the environment, I could see there being kind of cautionary, uh, you know, maybe it's too early to start cheering, kind of going back to what you said about the senile populations. We could potentially be getting adults established, but if we're not bringing the fungus with them and it's not already present in the environment, is there caution about mm-hmm. that form of culturing and, and restoration. Yeah, I'm going to slam the brakes on right now. I see two things in the highway with what you just said <laughs> that I'd like to, like to bring to light. Okay. Number one, I, I think everyone means well when they grow orchids from seed without fungi or with, and they put them out back in nature. And that makes, again, it makes everyone have that feel good feeling. But you have to understand the genetics here of the population, and you don't want to introduce clones of the same, you know, you don't want to oversaturate that population with an orchid that is basically the same orchid. Um, hmm. there, there's, a, there's a balance. You have to understand the, the population genetics of the orchids out there. So, you know, you just can't willy-nilly throw things out there and, um, and expect that to be around in 10 years, or some of your actions might have consequences. The second thing is I'm very conservative about not putting out exotic fungi mm. into habitats that aren't from that area. For example, the Hawaiian orchid, Platanthera or Peristylus holokyla, the fungus that, we, that it likes the best here in the lab, we just tried it to see, and it was a super fungus that we call it now. <laughs> uh, it worked. It worked. It's from Florida. This fungus came from Florida. Oh. Actually, not far from Gainesville, my hometown. And I said, wow, can we, should we take the fungus and the orchid from Hawaii, the Florida fungus and the orchid back to Hawaii? And I, I put the brakes on that and I, I asked around some of the experts and uh, the answer is no. The Hawaiians didn't want it there either. The seedlings had a Florida fungus and there was a risk, we thought, of introducing exotic fungus from mm. Florida into Hawaii. And who knows what could have happened? You know, maybe, maybe nothing, maybe something, but we didn't want to risk that. So those are the two things you have to keep in mind, you know, is, are the seeds that you're working with in the lab or what is the genetics of those seeds and where are the parents, where the two parents come from? Are they genetically related or not? And then is the fungus from that area or not? Yeah. uh, Always good cautionary tales. And I mean, I think of plants that don't self readily. If you put too many clones out there, are they even going to be able to reproduce or, 
you know, not every mycorrhizal fungus only partners with plants. It could be a rot producer, a potential disease agent. And, you know, I think about that even with gardening right now, this sort of recognition that mycorrhizae are important, but then these generalist applications of things. Who knows, right? And that's that's always the, the big scary part because some of the worst blights, some of the worst invasive species tend to be fungi. Mm. Yeah. And so... Where do you see this going over the next decade? I mean, obviously, genetic technology is getting more and more advanced and more readily available. And, you know, the conservation need is more prevalent than it's ever been and shows no signs of uh, waning. Uh, so where do you see your work going over the next decade? Well, it's like the, the, that subject has been uh, on our on our radar when I say our uh, Philip Seaton and I are writing this book together on conservation. And we're, we're always asking that question as we continue to write. And we keep coming back to several things that we must achieve for successful conservation. Obviously, climate change is going to be a real, real uh, tough thing to overcome and for a lot of these orchids. But that aside, at the end of the day, we need more people, young people, to get involved, to understand the natural world. And that means putting down your cell phones and soaking up nature. It, nature is out there. It's, it's calling you out. <laughs> it, it needs us and we need them. And it's fascinating to be here at a small college where I can show our students this. And it's in their DNA. These young people are really, really into it. And they don't want to go back to the cell phone. They want to learn more about the organisms that they're seeing and, and how to save them. So we need more young people. That's a big one. We need to be able to uh, work together as far as researchers and hobbyists. There's a, a disconnect there. And when I give talks at orchid societies and meetings, I, I really value and cherish all I can learn from hobbyists because they have a lot of answers to some tough questions that have baffled me. And, uh, and, I, and I like learning from them. And we have to be able to set aside some reserves for these orchid hotspots, we call them, where these orchids are in diverse numbers, where the fungi, the seeds, the, the, the insect pollinators are all self-sustaining. We have to go out and get more real estate and lock it down and, and hire people to keep it from being logged in the fringes and so on. Uh, and there's a lot of interest in doing that, even in the warming world. And so uh, really the orchid itself we're guilty as charged. I'm guilty of charged sometimes of, of putting on blinders and just seeing the orchid, but we got to take the blinders off and we got to step back and look at the landscape and how it's going to be in 10 years, 20 years and make preparations. And that's going to include bringing young people in, conserving the fungus in the habitat and just, and just moving forward. And it's real sad to say on another on another note that, you know, on some of my travels, we, we would see orchids we've never, like in Madagascar, we would see orchids that we, in the habitats that we think are a new species. And we were confident they weren't going to be there next year because of, you know, destruction of the habitat. And you have mm. to walk past. You have to you understand that you can't save everything um, in, this, in this age of extinction. But we can do a lot with what we have left. And I have about 10 more years, maybe 20, uh, maybe 12 years. And I'd like to continue to, uh, to make an impact any way I can. Um, 
Kingsley Dixon in Australia made a famous, uh, to me, a very profound statement once. He said, orchids are so complicated that if you, if you get orchids right, all other plants will follow. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, and, and that's why going back to what we started with, that's I'm a huge supporter of the North American Orchid Conservation Center. I, I love everything they're doing. I donate half of my sticker sales to them and they're just, they're doing amazing things. And that's a really kind of the point is if you can do good by orchids, the ecosystem's probably doing pretty good as well. Exactly. Wonderful. Um, so with that in mind, if people want to keep a finger on the pulse of your work, learn more about, read your research, uh, where do you recommend they go looking? Uh, you have the you have the benefit of the internet. Mayock's <laughs> website is fantastic for here in North America. Um, North American Orchid Conservation Center, as you've said. Uh, you can also get information from uh, IUCN, the uh, Orchid Specialist Group websites. Um, and remember that orchids throughout the world are, are worth looking at as well. There's a lot of uh, interest in Australia. Some of the Australians are actually quite far ahead in conservation of orchids there. Hmm. American Orchid Society is another. Their American Orchid Society is extremely interested in conserving our orchids. And uh, I would encourage people to, to explore their, their website as well. Great. Well, wonderful. Dr. Zettler. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Thank you so much for all the work you're going to continue to keep doing. Uh, but thank you, most importantly, today for taking the time to talk with us. This has been absolutely enlightening and fascinating. And uh, I, I said it before, and I'll say it again. I'm a huge fan of what you do. And I think you've just got a bunch of new converts in your camp. So thank you again. You're welcome. And I wanted to relay that likewise to you. I think you're you're doing a fantastic job with putting an end to plant blindness. So please carry on. I, I much appreciate that. And I'll keep doing it as long as I can. <laughs> All right. Well, hang in there, stay healthy and uh, yeah, go orchids. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. All right. That wraps up a fantastic conversation. I thank Dr. Zettler for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And I hope you took away a lot of food for thought from that conversation. This is why orchids are so important to me. If you're doing good for orchids, you're generally doing good for the environment. And that is why I dedicate a portion of every sticker sale to the North American Orchid Conservation Center. If you don't want to buy a sticker, at least go check them out. Show them some support. It is a really wonderful group dedicated to conserving some of the most important plants in the ecosystem. All of the relevant links for this episode, as well as every other episode, can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. And while you're over there, consider supporting the show over at Patreon, because I could not be doing this each and every week without the support from my patrons. I thank each and every one of them. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.